And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. But yet, tragically, there are popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone. There are other conditions to be met. A what? No holiness, no heaven. You don't get into heaven by faith alone. You get justified by faith alone. You get into a position where God is 100% for you by faith alone. And in order to get into heaven, that faith must bear the fruit of love. You will find that it is you who are mistaken about a great many things. Back to the Reformation. It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation. The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches the hosts attend. Welcome back to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. My name is Matt Rosenblum and I'm here with my co-host, Onyx Seadian. And today we are going to be talking about the founders of the Reformation. And today we have invited a guest, and our guest is philosopher and theologian Kenneth Richard Samples. He has a great passion to help people understand the reasonableness and relevance of Christian truth claims, and he is the senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe and the author of several books, including Classic Christian Thinkers, Christian Endgame, Seven Truths That Changed the World, and God Among Sages. And today we will be discussing Ken's latest book, Classic Christian Thinkers, and Ken will help us to take us back to the Reformation to discover who these men really were. Welcome to the show, Ken. Hey, Matt and Oning, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me on. I look forward to our discussion. Absolutely. How have things been with you, Ken? Great to have you. You know, the quarantine's been a little uh, little tough from time to time, but I've been doing well. I've got some writing done, and uh, my family's healthy, so I, I can't complain. Amen. All right. So, Ken, tell us a little bit about your book, Classic Christian Thinkers. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I have long thought that Christians living today can learn a lot from some of the great Christian thinkers of the past. And people like St. Augustine and St. Athanasius have been, they have been very uh, helpful and, and meaningful to me in my study of theology, apologetics, and philosophy. And, um, you know, I, I thought for a long time that uh, I wanted to write a very accessible book. So my book is not a tome. It's not an encyclopedia. It really is a primer, and it introduces nine uh, classic Christian thinkers. I start with Irenaeus and Athanasius and Augustine as the early church fathers. I then move to the Middle Ages and discuss Anselm and Aquinas. Uh, Then the Reformation, the two big individuals of the Reformation, Luther and Calvin, and then I close the book with a discussion of Blaise Pascal, the, the very distinguished scientist. And the last person I, I, I address is C.S. Lewis. And I love historical theology, and I hope this will help people today to appreciate uh, the heritage that we all have. Amen. 
Like always, Ken, you're very articulate and you're very simple without being simplistic in your writing. Well, thank you. That's a real compliment. Uh, C.S. Lewis said he thought, you know, uh, to take complicated ideas and speak about them carefully and clearly uh, was very important. And I've tried to model that. I'm not always successful, but I certainly, I certainly work at it. Well, I've always enjoyed your work. Thank you. Definitely. Okay, so let's jump right in and let's talk about our first dude who actually came before the Reformation, and that's Augustine. So who was this guy, Ken? And let's talk about his conversion story as well. Yeah, very good. Augustine is, uh, I guess I'd have to say that outside of the biblical authors, Augustine is my favorite Christian thinker. Uh, I think Augustine as well, at least in Western Christendom, he may be the most influential Christian mind ever. That's saying a lot. He does have some competition. But Augustine was born in North Africa in a little city of Tagaste. His mother, Monica, was a Christian. His dad was a pagan. And uh, Augustine was a very bright boy. His mom exposed him to Christianity very early. Uh, but Augustine kind of went through his wayward period. Uh, him and his uh, his uh, homeboys uh, there in Tagaste, <laughs> they uh, got into mischief. There's a story in the Confessions, which is Augustine's autobiography, where Augustine and some of his friends stole pears from the neighbors, not because they were hungry or they needed it, but because they wanted to do something illicit. Mm. And uh, Augustine uh, was intelligent and sharp. He's named after, by the way, two Caesars, Caesar Augustus and Marcus Aurelius. So we, we call him uh, 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 Augustine rather than Augustine, uh, mm-hmm. simply because of his tie to, to Augustus. But he's sent away to Carthage, the big city there in the Roman Empire. And uh, Augustine really leaves the Christian faith, uh, Matt. He... Uh, he dives right into the hedonism of the Greco-Roman world. Wow. Uh, in fact, he has a uh, he has he takes on uh, a woman who is not his wife. They have an illegitimate child together. He also uh, is looking for the big life. He wants to ultimately speak for Caesar. So he's trained in rhetoric. Along the way, he dabbles in. Uh, kind of cultic religion with the Manichees. In fact, he's in that group for nine years. And, uh, you know, it, it's at that point that grace really begins to, to sink in. He is, uh, he's very restless and he's very disenchanted. And the philosophy and the cultic religion and the hedonistic lifestyle are not satisfying to him. And uh, he finally bumps into probably somebody who is his intellectual equal, it's St. Anselm, who is uh, the bishop of, uh, of Milan there uh, in Italy. And uh, Augustine is impressed with Ambrose for a couple different reasons. He's a great speaker, and of course, Augustine is a rhetorician, but he's also impressed with Ambrose for his intellect, and also because Ambrose is actually living a celibate life, and Augustine yeah. can't figure that out. He figures... No, no male can, can say celibate, but it, it, is, uh, it is through his interaction with, uh, with Ambrose that his conversion really begins to take place. Uh, 
he sees that other Platonic scholars have become Christian. Um, he starts studying the Bible, and Ambrose kind of helps clear up some of his challenges. And then right at the end, he has a, a really extraordinary experience. Uh, he hears a child's voice singing kind of uh, a rhythmic uh, little sing-song tale uh, in Latin, tole lege, tole lege, take up and read, take up and read. Gustin has his Bible open to the book of Romans chapter 13, reads Paul's message about, uh, you know, stop giving your life to the flesh, but put on the person of Christ. And uh, Augustine is converted to Christianity, and that conversion really very much changes the world. I mean, Augustine becomes first a priest, then a bishop. Uh, his books, like the Confessions, creates the autobiography. The City of God becomes the first philosophy of history. So it's hard to be hyperbolic when it comes to Augustine. He is such an influential person. And uh, the great thing is you can pick up the confessions and read his writings, and he's articulate and clear. He doesn't write like an ancient person. He writes a lot like contemporary people. Wow. So he was kind of a rowdy dude, huh? Yeah, yeah. He, uh, you know, he, he had the challenging life. I mean, he's kind of like the rock star. And In fact, Matt, uh, Bob Dylan sings about him and uh, the Rolling Stones and even Sting. So I say he's the only uh, kind of contemporary Christian thinker that rock and rollers kind of like. <laughs> wow. Sounds like some of the people that we grew up with. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. <laughs> and I understand he was uh, prolific in his writing I and mean, he just uh, about a million words or something like that. That's a, oh, Nick, that's exactly right. He wrote more than five million words, and wow. um, in fact, uh, his uh, corpus, his body of writings, is larger than any Greek or Roman author. So he is the most prolific author of the ancient world, Christian or non-Christian. And this, uh, the writing began at after his conversion. Then, so w w was he about in his twenties or thirties? Yeah, very much so. He was uh, in his early 30s when he experienced his dramatic conversion, and uh, he lived a long time. He was born in 354, died in 430, so about 76 years, which is a very long life in the ancient world. And Absolutely. His uh, writings are just enormous. I mean, I've been reading him and about him for the last 30 years, and I still have a long way to go. So let's jump into his theology, his theological convictions, Ken. Um, a lot of people know him as the theologian of grace, correct? Yeah, very much. That's, uh, you know, that's what I call him, and I, I think that's probably the best designation for him. Uh, he faced a lot of controversies in his life, the Pelagian controversy, for example. We don't know a lot about the particulars of Pelagius because his writings were lost, so most of what we know about the heretic Pelagius comes from Augustine, but the story is that he was uh, uh, he he lived in uh, England in Britain, and uh, Pelagius began to say that uh, you could save yourself. That is, you didn't need the grace of God; it was there if you needed it. But if you were disciplined, 
if you focused on the spiritual life, uh, you could be saved apart from the grace of God. And of course, this, uh, this really uh, revved up Augustine. Augustine thought that this was a terrible uh, mistake, that, that this was unbiblical and unchristian. And Augustine spent a good bit of his time critiquing Pelagius and teaching that salvation is solely a gift of God. It is not by our own efforts. In fact, our own efforts, which are ultimately the fruit of salvation, the fruit of grace, but, but never the root of salvation. And, and certainly people who came after him, Thomas Aquinas, uh, Luther, Calvin, Cramner, um, and in many ways, all of us really have a, a debt of gratitude for Augustine teaching us that Christianity is not a religion of self-help. It's a religion of divine rescue. Hmm. Ken, what was Augustine's view of original sin? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, Matt. Uh, I really think Augustine is the one that really focuses in on that biblical doctrine. I mean, I meet people today, unfortunately, who think that Augustine invented original sin, and I try to point them back to the Bible and say, no, um, you know, <laughs> original sin has deep biblical roots. But Augustine had some interesting ideas about original sin. He, uh, Augustine was very good at using analogies. For example, he said maybe we could think about original sin as like a hereditary disease hmm. uh, that we have, uh, we have adopted from our, from our forefather, Adam. And so, uh, he describes sin as, as something that had been passed on, and we had inherited it from our, from our parents. He also said that sin may be like a strong man who's taken us captive. Maybe, I remember when I was uh, early in school, we would wrestle. You know, a strong man puts you on the mat and takes control of you. Augustine said maybe we could think of original sin that way. And then a third one is more of a courtroom kind of context where uh, Augustine said that maybe we should think about sin as if we have been found guilty in a courtroom by a holy judge. Hmm. So these are, these are very powerful metaphors, and Augustine was a very serious student of the Bible. Uh, he was not into inventing ideas. He was drawing them out of Scripture and trying to explain them. Uh, so, Ken, some groups uh, would would uh, say that, uh, well, he is, he is of us. Like uh, the Roman Catholics would say he, he is of us, and Protestants would say he is of us. Um, what would you say? Yeah, I think that it's important to talk about that. Uh, you know, Carl Truman, who is uh, a Presbyterian, a conservative Presbyterian theologian who was uh, taught at Westminster, uh, I think is actually from Scotland. Yeah, he's great. Carl Truman said that uh, that Augustine probably has influenced Protestants nearly as much as he has Catholics, and I agree with that. Um, you know, I I think that that in some respects uh, Augustine clearly was a Catholic and maybe even a Roman Catholic to some degree. I mean, his has a very strong view of the authority of the Church, has a strong view of the nature of the sacraments. But in terms of salvation by grace, that deeply echoed in the Protestant tradition. 
And, um, you know, Augustine touches upon so many different areas. He speaks powerfully about the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. He talks about original sin. He talks about the Trinity. Um, so I think Augustine certainly is a thinker for all, all branches of historic Christianity. Now, interestingly, Matt and Onig, in, in Eastern Christendom, among the Eastern Orthodox, they're quite critical of Augustine. They think he's too pessimistic about human nature. They're not terribly comfortable with his predestinarian views. Mm -hmm. But I, I would say, I think it is correct to say that Augustine is, is largely the father of Western Christendom. So he influences both Catholics and Protestants. Right. As the predecessor to Luther and Calvin, he definitely influenced them. Very much so. The, uh, you know, the magisterial reformation of, of Luther, Calvin, and Cramner, uh, they have deep Augustinian roots. And, uh, there, and there are other Catholics. I mean, Thomas Aquinas, uh, while Aquinas called Aristotle the philosopher, he called Augustine the theologian. And, uh, you know, Pascal, who was also a Catholic, uh, very influenced by uh, Augustine. In fact, I'll give you a quote that I give in the book, Benedict, Pope Benedict XVI. So this is the Pope Emeritus who retired a few years ago before, uh, before Francis. Benedict is, a, is an Augustine expert. And ben, Pope Benedict said that he preferred Augustine over Aquinas, which is quite a comment for a wow. Pope to make. And he said it was because of Augustine's view of grace and that Augustine was very personal in the way that he, that he wrote. And so uh, I think it's fair to say that everybody in Western Christendom, to one degree or another, owes the debt of gratitude to St. Augustine. Well, it seems that Augustine was more closely tied to the Bible maybe than Aquinas, because Aquinas was more of a philosophical theologian. Do you think that would be correct? I think there is truth in that, Matt. I, I think that... Uh, I think Thomas was very capable philosopher. Uh, I, I, he was a masterful philosopher. He's a very capable theologian. And, and Thomas modeled himself in many ways after Augustine. But, but I think Thomas is so bright and so extraordinary in his philosophical thinking that, you know, he's not an easy person to read. Um, I think Augustine writes in more personal categories, maybe even more biblical categories. So most Protestants have always leaned more toward Augustine than, than to Thomas. Although I have some colleagues who are very Thomistic. They like the philosophical framework, even if they differ with some of the Catholic doctrine. Mm -hmm. So definitely Aquinas was definitely more influenced by Aristotle more than anything else. I think so. I, I, I think that it is fair to say that uh, Thomas's kind of Aristotelian Christian synthesis that comes out in the Summa Theologica reflects kind of an Aristotelian Christian perspective. I mean, some people are pretty critical of Augustine. They think he was a little too platonic or neoplatonic. Right. I think that uh, you can overstate that. I think I think the ultimate authority for Augustine was the Bible, but you know it is true. Augustine knew Platonic categories, and sometimes he would use them to try to help explain Christianity. And so, to some degree, 
you have a platonic Christian synthesis in Augustine. Hmm. Ken, what is Augustine mean by when he talked about Adam's original potential and actual state when it came to sin? And how did this view refute Pelagius? Yeah, very much so. I'm, I'm uh, you know, in, in looking at uh, Adam's three states, uh, his, his first one, he calls it Adam's original state. And, he's, and he uses the expression, able not to sin and die. That is, Adam was created in such a way that if he would have responded in obedience to God, he would be able not to sin and die. That would be his original state. His potential state, that is, if he had been in obedience, it would be characterized by not able to sin and die. That is, if he had been obedient to the Lord, the Lord would have transformed him and he would not be able to sin and die. Hmm. But then Augustine says his actual state, because Adam rebelled against God, that uh, Adam uh, is not able not to sin and die. And, you know, that's an interesting thing, because, uh, you know, the, the more I look at my own life, uh, the more I realize that even as a Christian, I battle that sinful nature. And Augustine would say that apart from the grace of God, you're not able not to sin. And therefore, you, uh, you can't resolve that condition. And uh, that's what led Augustine to argue against Pelagius, that there's no way for human beings to draw upon their own resources and to put them back into a right relationship with God. This has to be something that's done by God through the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, it comes by grace, it's through faith, it's in Christ. And of course, this sets the table well later in the 16th century when Luther, who was an Augustinian monk, uh, Calvin, who was a previous Catholic. So this sets the stage well for Augustine to critique Pelagianism and for the Protestants to critique medieval Catholicism. Wow. Okay, so let's go on to speak about, talk about Luther and Luther was definitely the man who started this whole thing, and that's the reason why we're here today. And who was Martin Luther? Yeah, Luther is Luther is born uh, right as the Middle Ages are are wrapping up, um, and he's born into a fairly well-to-do family. His his parents have kind of a uh, a silver mining company. And they realize very quickly they've got a bright sun on their hand and they want to give him the best possible education and maybe encourage him to go into the business field and take care of his parents when he's old. Um, Luther, however, has a, an extraordinary experience. He gets caught in a thunderstorm. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been seen lightning, but I mean, uh, that's nature's fury. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luther's kind of a nominal Catholic, but he cries out, St. Anne, save me. And he, he, uh, he's not killed in the experience. And so, you know, he, he says in that, that, uh, that comment, St. Anne, save me, I'll become a monk. And he follows through. Uh, he joins the, the monastery, the Augustinian monastery there in, in Erfurt in Germany. Uh, and What's interesting, Matt and Onig, is he really tries to bear down. There's a comment that Luther makes later. He says, you know, if anybody could have ever saved themselves, it would have been me. 
he's very diligent in trying to follow all the medieval Catholic views of repentance, of indulgences, to follow all of the rules of the church. But he discovers what uh, C.S. Lewis later said, you never know how bad you are until you try really hard to be good. <laughs> you know, th there are some extraordinary stories about Luther. They say that he would sometimes be in confession with his father confessor for four, five, six hours, searching his mind. He, he felt like, you know, there's got to be sins that I have not confessed. He felt uh, a, a real sense of brokenness before God. And he, he even later said that he began to resent God rather than loving God. He began to hate God because he felt like I can never do enough. And so he goes through a spiritual crisis and Matt and Onig, I suggest, I wish every patriarch, pope, bishop, cardinal, pastor, elder, church person could read about Augustine's struggle. And one thing I quote in the book is, again, Pope Benedict XVI. By the way, Benedict, who was uh, Joseph Ratzinger, he was German. And uh, when he was pope, he went to the German Lutheran churches. And he said, you know, Luther's burning question of how, where does a sinner stand before a holy God? Benedict said, that's all of our question. All of us have to go back to Luther. Really? And I thought, wow, I, that's, that's not something I think you often hear a pope say. Mm -hmm. But it, it, is, it is this crisis. Uh, have I prayed enough to the Virgin Mary? Have I, have I repented enough of my sin? Have I done enough good works? Uh, then the controversy of the indulgences blew up right there in Germany. And that, of course, led Luther to reinvestigate salvation based upon the Pauline uh, books of Romans and Galatians. And that started the spark that led to the Reformation. Uh, Ken, why do you think Luther was so uh, conscious of sin? Why do you think he had such a sensitivity to it? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think that, I think Luther was really a very interesting individual. P personally, I think he was an extraordinary in, uh, individual. I don't know that any other reformer could have been the pathfinder that led to the Reformation. I, I think Luther was, was really a theological genius in many ways. He wasn't nearly as systematic, I think, as Calvin. But I, I think he had a, a, a deep sensitivity. I think that he was aware uh, of his own inadequacies. But I don't think it was merely that he was a sensitive person. I think he, rec he recognized that before the law of God, uh, he didn't measure up very well. And uh, again, I, 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 wish, I wish all of my Eastern Orthodox friends and my Catholic friends and I like to think of them as friends. I like to dialogue with Catholics and Orthodox. I've debated and discussed with them. But I wish everybody in Christendom could read through Luther's spiritual crisis because um, I, think, I think Luther touches on something, that we are broken, we are fallen, and we cry out for, for God's nature. And so Maybe it was the way God constituted him, but I'm hoping every, every one of us has a little Luther in us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. Um, 
So during his uh, doctoral studies, possibly, he recognized the holiness of God, as you said, and um, grew that, that sensitivity, that sensitivity grew in him, possibly? Yeah, I, I think what's interesting is I, I think that Luther thought, you know, I'll, I'll join a, the monastery and I'll be able to figure all this out and I'll resolve all of my tensions. But I think actually going in the monastery, it made his problems worse. He realized that, hey, I'm, tr I'm doing everything the church tells me to do, and I still, still can't keep the law of God. And I think uh, von Staupitz, who was uh, an associate of his, uh, an advisor, von Staupitz encouraged Luther to go and study the Bible. He said, maybe this will help you work through the tensions that you have. And uh, so Luther began uh, pouring through scripture, uh, Romans and Galatians especially, and, and in his mind, he rediscovered what he saw as the apostolic gospel, that salvation is a gift of God's grace, that it comes exclusively through faith. It is solely in Christ. And so uh, then he begins to develop, uh, you know, sola scriptura. You know, tradition has value, but it's not on the level of holy writ. And uh, this is called Luther's Tower Experience, where where uh, he doesn't intend, Luther does not intend to start a new branch of Christendom. He simply nails the 95 Theses as an academic challenge to, to uh, Tetzel and the indulgence controversy. And, uh, you know, again, I think, I think Luther is the product of, uh, of Scripture. And uh, uh, I, unfortunately, because... I don't know if you guys agree with me here, but I, I view the Reformation as a tragic necessity. I think it was tragic that Christendom was divided, but mm -hmm. I think it was uh, it was necessary. Yeah. And, unfor and unfortunately, I don't think the Catholic Church has ever really maybe understood or come to grips with the Reformation. And I think that it was unfortunate that Luther ultimately felt that he had to to move in a different direction. Well, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, most people don't think of what the word actually means to reform. They didn't want to do away with the Catholic Church. They wanted to reform it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you look at things, I mean, when we look at the sharp differences between Catholics and Protestants, and I would identify maybe the, the sharpest difference would probably be in the area of authority. Is scripture our final authority as opposed to the the kind of tripart view of Catholicism where you've got scripture, apostolic tradition, and the magisterium? Mm -hmm. Certainly the issue of justification, is it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or is it by the sacraments of the church through faith but completed by works of loving obedience? And then Mary, the saints, purgatory, other issues— but also, if you go back to the Nicene Creed, I mean, Catholics, Orthodox, and historic Protestants affirm every word of the Nicene Creed. That's a lot of common ground we have. Uh, the, the common ground is very real. And so you have, you have very significant agreement and very significant disagreement. Yep. Definitely. Yeah, the development of uh, theological thought, I think, was necessary. Necessitated, 
was that the word? Uh, the Ref- the Reformation. So, like you mentioned, the uh, sola fide, sola gratia, and so on. And um, yeah, uh, in your book, you did mention that Luther uh, did um, nail the theses uh, to the church wall only as a protest, not to actually you know separate the the church, but to the to correct its errors. Um, Move, uh, moving along with uh, with Luther, so Luther, we, we did talk about uh, Augustine, but Luther was an Augustinian monk. How was he uh, influenced by Augustine? Yeah, very much so. Now, um, you know, some people uh, have said, uh, uh, for example, Benjamin Warfield, the great, the old Princeton scholar, uh, the, the reformed uh, teacher of the 19th and early 20th century, Warfield thought that the Reformation was like a cognitive dissonance in the mind of Augustine. And what he meant by that, and, and others, by the way, have, agree with that, and I agree with that. I think when Augustine dealt with the Dontatus controversy, that was the controversy uh, in Africa where, uh, you know, during the Roman persecution, some of the Romans would come to the, the Christian bishops and say, hey, give us your copy of your scripture and bend the knee to Caesar, or we're going to lop off your head. Well, some of the bishops, you know, condescended. But afterward, after this this uh, persecution died down, those bishops wanted to come back to the faith. And the Dantas has said, no way. It, you know, the only, the only baptism that's legitimate comes from bishops and priests who have not compromised the faith. Augustine took a different position. He said, look, the authenticity of baptism is not based upon the moral obedience of the person who performs it, but upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace. So Augustine had a strong view of the authority of the church, but in light of the Pelagian controversy, Augustine had a very strong view of original sin and grace. And so in some ways you have precursor to the Reformation in the mind of Augustine. He's kind of Catholic in his view of the sacraments and the authority of the church, but he's Protestant in his view of sin and salvation by grace. I think that in some respects, Luther saw those kinds of elements, and uh, certainly he began to read scripture in a, in a very new light. Um, I think probably Luther thought maybe Augustine didn't go far enough, but I want to be fair to Augustine. Uh, You know, I think Augustine laid a foundation that led inevitably to the Reformation, but it is true. There are Catholic ideas in Augustine, and so I don't think we should be surprised when Catholics want to lay hold to Augustine uh, the way we do. One thing about Luther is he had very sharp words when he was dealing with his opponents. I mean, look at his book, Bondage of the Will. I've read that book. Man, sometimes when he's dealing with Erasmus, it's brutal. Well, you know, Matt, uh, I, what I, think, I, I think Luther was, was brilliant. I think he had enormous charisma. I'm not sure there's anybody who could have had that kind of leadership and in, in sparking kind of a, a pathfinder in developing the Reformation. But if I were to criticize Luther, I, I think there are times where he overstates things. I think there are times where 
you know, his some of his comments about the Jews are. I was just going to bring that up to you. Are troubling. Yes. Uh, now, it is true that some of those comments he makes about Jews, they come late in life. He has illnesses. You know, he's kind of disappointed. He thought, since I've recovered the gospel, he thought maybe Jews would now be open to the gospel, that they were critical of him. And he comes out with these statements that uh, are very troubling today. And they've tarnished, I think, his reputation. Uh, But I'll say again, I don't think anybody could have done what Luther did as the principal uh, leader of the of the initial Reformation. Yeah, and I mean, you have to look at the context of the day, too. I mean, not to excuse any of that, but I mean, look, at he was a target himself. I mean, he was really a lone ranger standing up for the truth. That, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I, uh, I don't agree with the statements he made about the Jews, but I think it's important to understand the context and to realize that all of these men we've been talking about and they're extraordinary people, but they all have feet of clay. They are, they're all forgiven sinners. And, uh, you know, the, the old adage is, be careful about meeting your heroes. You might be disappointed. Right. Right. Would it, what, what's the old saying that the best men are men at best? That, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, Augustine makes big mistakes at times. Luther, Calvin, uh, and including and maybe especially Ken Samples. So, yeah, we're, we're all saved by grace. We, we all need God's forgiveness. And uh, these men have a lot to help us and contribute, but they're not perfect. Yeah. Amen. Um, so we talked about Luther, Augustine, and now a contemporary, which is Calvin of Luther. Is that correct? So, uh, who is John Calvin, and why is he probably the most well-known of all the Reformers? Yeah, very good. Calvin, a lot of people uh, may not be aware that Calvin really is a second-generation Reformer. Uh, Calvin is born in 1509, so he's actually 26 years younger than Luther. Hmm. Luther and Calvin never meet each other. There is a story that Luther read something Calvin wrote and said, now that's a first-class theological mind. Um, that, I don't know if that's apocryphal, but, uh, you know, they never met. Calvin is born a Frenchman. We think of him, you know, in Geneva, but he's, he is uh, French-born, has a Catholic background, is interested in law. His father wants him to be an attorney. But uh, Calvin is uh, influenced by the Reformation that has swept across Europe. And, and of course, uh, you know, the technology of the time, uh, you know, the printing press meant that things that were written, like Luther's tracts, could, could move all across the, the intellectual marketplace in Europe. Well, Calvin uh, begins to read some of Luther's writings and... Uh, leaves Catholicism, uh, is committed to the new Protestant movement. Uh, And and Calvin is uh, very different than Luther. Uh, Some people call Calvin the shy reformer. You know, I meet people from time to time who aren't comfortable with Calvin or Calvinism, uh, you know, and they try to kind of 
explain Calvin as this, you know, inventor of, of theological systems. Calvin is a biblical scholar. Calvin is not terribly interested in philosophy. Mm-hmm. Doesn't like to speculate. Uh, I think one of Calvin's greatest contribution is in his, uh, not just the Institutes of the Christian Religion that many people think is the finest Reformation text ever written, but it's also Calvin's commentaries. I mean, he writes a commentary about most of the books of the Old Testament, every one of the New Testament except the book of Revelation, of which he said he didn't understand. Um, Calvin, his great contribution is as a biblical scholar. And while I don't think Calvin had the personality to do what Luther did in terms of being a pathfinder, a leader of the Reformation, I think Calvin is the greatest systematic theologian of the Reformation period. So there are things, there are things Calvin couldn't do that Luther did, and, but I also think there are things that Calvin did that Luther couldn't do. Hmm. You know, it's very amazing because when you look at Calvin, like you just stated, you, see, you look at his commentaries— the guy was not only an amazing systematician, but he was a tremendous exegete. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is again where I, I, I think, you know, I'm, uh, I'm very much interested in apologetics and I, I'm, I like to think of myself as an ecumenical guy in the best sense of the word. I, I try to be charitable. I try to bring people together. Uh, but I think sometimes, uh, people who are not reformed and, uh, they, they don't, they kind of fail to appreciate Calvin, that, you know, Calvin, Calvin wasn't pushing predestination uh, because it was his idea. Uh, he presented it because he felt that it was derived directly from scripture. And, you know, I've met non-reformed people, uh, people in the, the Wesleyan tradition who have told me, Calvin's commentaries, even today, are still some of the best on particular biblical books. And he also influenced Thomas Cranmer and the English Reformation. That's exactly right. Uh, Calvin sh- casts a big shadow. I mean, uh, his, his uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion really kind of developed a, a genuine Protestant branch of Christendom. Uh, he influenced other reformers. And, and, and by the way, the reform tradition is unique. Uh, I touch upon this briefly in my book. Um, you know, uh, reformed theology is different than Lutheranism and Catholicism in this sense. Uh, you can be reformed and be in a various different denominations. I mean, you can be Presbyterian or maybe Dutch Reformed, but you can also be a Baptist and be have Reformed leanings. You can, you can be Anglican and have Reformed mm-hmm. leanings. Reformed theology has kind of a universal appeal, and uh, Calvin is right at the forefront of that. Uh, he's not the only figure. There are many other distinct ref, uh, reformers, but but Calvin is. Calvin is in the mind of many people, not only one of the best theologians, but he may have been one of the most important people of Western civilization because democracy, right. capitalism, he, he, he shapes Europe and then ultimately America. In fact, 
some people have said it's hard to conceive of the birth of America apart from the Protestant Reformation and maybe apart from the writings of John Calvin. So speaking of Calvin's writings, you have a, can you give a brief summary of Calvin's uh, key positions and ideas? Yeah, I, I think Calvin... Calvin is, again, uh, in many ways a lot like Luther. He touches on a lot of things. But, you know, Calvin's theology of the Word of God, the, the idea that all of our theology has to be grounded in the teaching of Scripture. Uh, you know, Calvin sets forth the idea that, that the Word of God is that final authority. He accepts Luther's idea of sola scriptura, but he develops it uh, even further. And uh, obviously, Calvin also talks about the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, that these are critical biblical teachings and, and very important uh, to the living of the Christian life. But you know, Calvin also touches upon other things. Um, as an apologist, I appreciate his idea of, uh, you know, the census divinitatis, that Calvin looks at Romans 1 and says, all of us have a sense of the divine. All of us have kind of an intuition that God exists. Well, this idea uh, has, has influenced even philosophers today, like Alvin Plantica and uh, Waldersdorf. This whole new Reformed epistemology, uh -huh. in many respects, has roots in John Calvin. So, you know, Calvin is very diverse. He has a view of uh, accommodation. He says, look, God is, God is infinite and eternal, and so God has to talk baby talk to us. I, uh, I'm tempted to agree with Alistair McGrath, the evangelical Anglican, who says that uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion may be the most important Protestant book. And I mean, wow, I mean, that's a mouthful when you think of the, the many writings of Martin Luther and, and other individuals. But Calvin is a significant thinker, and unfortunately, I, you know, I tell my Wesleyan and my evangelical friends that even if you disagree with Reformed theology and what you call Calvinism, you can't afford to miss Calvin. He's too important. So, Ken, was Calvin as grumpy as Luther? <laughs> well, you know, uh, it's, again, this is, this is very interesting. Calvin, uh, Calvin was a shy person. Uh, some people have even said he wasn't terribly sociable, but you know, you gotta, you gotta realize that Calvin had a lot of suffering in his life. Mm -hmm. uh, he lived a fairly short life. Uh, his, uh, his wife died. He, the, the only child they had died. He had a lot of illnesses uh, in his life. He was in many ways shaped that, by that suffering. But, you know, some of the tender things that people don't appreciate about Calvin is that Calvin always talked about the widows, the orphans. He talked about, the, you know, the immigrants, the people that have no power. Calvin, even though, uh, you know, he was a brilliant person, he always reached out to the people who were low on the totem pole. And there are stories that his, his students, when he was very sick, they'd bring him in on a stretcher. And Calvin would speak to the congregation, laying virtually on his deathbed. You know, Calvin could be difficult. Uh, many people think his besetting sin was, was anger. Uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure Calvin was a, was a tough, 
tough bird. But, you know, he had a tough life and he had he had enemies as well. So Luther and Calvin are, are were far from perfect, but uh, they they had a deep understanding of biblical truth. Another thing I wanted to ask you about real briefly was his view of the sacraments, because he definitely departed from Lutheranism and Catholicism in his view of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, I, I was reading an article not too long ago that uh, they were kind of looking at four different views of uh, the Lord's Supper, and some people were proposing that actually the, the Reformed view was increasing uh, in, in popularity, and so Calvin's going to differ with the very sacramental view of the Catholic Church, that the grace of God comes via the sacraments of the Church, uh, but he also differs to some extent with, with Luther, uh, you know, rather than in, with, and among the sacraments, that uh, there is a spirit, there's a real spiritual presence of Christ. And um, I think, Matt, and to some degree, that's why Reformed theology kind of filters through different theological traditions, Baptist, mm -hmm. uh, Presbyterian, Anglican, because uh, Calvin, Calvin kind of allowed a person to, you know, to work through some of these things. So he does. He differs both from Luther and from the early Catholic tradition that he was trained in as a young man. Can briefly describe his view of baptism. Yeah, you know, it, it, it is, it, it's very important uh, to recognize that uh, Calvin thought that salvation was from first uh, to last a gift of God's grace, um, and that uh, baptism uh, was, a, was a sign of the covenant, that it included not just the adult, but it included the child, and that uh, baptism was the means of, of bringing that person into a covenant relationship uh, with God. I think, I think Calvin modeled well the idea of having deep respect for the law of God, but also understanding uh, deeply the, the grace of God. And so that covenantal idea of baptism is very strong uh, in John Calvin. Okay, so how should we view, you mentioned controversies previously, there were many criticisms of Calvin, so how should we view controversies, problems when reflecting back, particularly of the burning of Michael Servetus? Yeah, yeah, I mentioned that briefly in the book, you know, I, I've had I've encountered people that are just incensed with Calvin. Um, they, they think that, uh, you know, this, this made him no different than the Spanish Inquisition, that this was, Calvin was a, a terrible person. Um, you know, whether you, whether you agree with it or not, in the Middle Ages and into the Reformation era, Christians at that time, both Catholic and Protestant, thought that they lived in a Christian civilization. And they believed that to teach heresy, Michael Servetus, for example, adamantly denied the doctrine of the Incarnation and the Trinity. And he was a very obnoxious person. I mean, he hounded Calvin. 
Calvin, Calvin wrote him letters and said, don't come to Geneva because if you do, you will be arrested and you'll be charged. And, and by the way, the Catholic Inquisition was looking for Servetus. So Servetus wouldn't listen. He wouldn't take Calvin's advice and reconsider his theological positions. So he came to Geneva and sure enough, the uh, political authorities in Geneva uh, confronted him and arrested him. But I think it's critically important to realize that John Calvin did not execute Michael Servetus. It was the religious and political authorities of Geneva that tried Servetus and held him accountable. Now, again, whether you agree with this or not, uh, people in the Middle Ages and in the time of the Reformation, they viewed heresy as a type of treason. You were you were potentially shipwrecking Christian civilization, and you were threatening the destiny of human souls. And they took it very seriously. They believed that there were heretical views that could cause you to be arrested, charged, and put to death. Now, um, again, whether you, whether you agree with that or not, that was the view of the time. And Calvin even tried to intervene. Calvin went to the Geneva Council and said, look, uh, I agree that Servetus is a heretic, and I think that he is worthy of death, but how about showing mercy and not having him burned at the stake? How about another form of death that would be less painful? Now, again, you can disagree with that. You can disagree with what the Catholic Middle Ages and the Inquisition thought. You can disagree with what Calvin and the Council in Geneva thought. But I think it's wrong to blame all of this on John Calvin. Uh, and yet it has kind of uh, tarnished his reputation. But I'll, but I'll tell you, Onig and Matt, I think Calvin is, in my mind, the most misunderstood person in Christian history. Mm. I, I think we often hear, you know, uh, things about him that are that are sometimes false or sometimes are not the whole story. And so uh, I, I don't think it's appropriate to hold John Calvin responsible solely or singularly for the, the execution of Michael Servetus. So Calvin and Luther, as well as Augustine, fought against synergistic views of salvation. So today, of course, we have we don't have rank Pelagianism necessarily, although it does exist, but we have semi-Pelagianism, right, within Arminian theology and also with Catholic theology. So when we talk about semi-Pelagianism, and we call it semi-Pelagian, is is it a semi-heresy? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I. I think I would approach it this way, Matt. I, I, I think that I think one of the very important differences that we have in Christendom, and it, and it's not just between contemporary Catholics and Protestants. I mean, there there are most most Catholic theologians today would not agree with Augustine on predestination. Mm -hmm. They they hold a much more modernistic view. So there, there are not only differences within modern Christendom between Catholics and Protestants as to the exact relationship between grace, faith, and works, and uh, the human will and the influence of grace, whether the will cooperates with the grace or whether that grace is efficacious. 
But as you two both know, even within Protestantism, there are divisions. Oh, yeah. You talk to Wesleyans, you talk to Reformed, mm -hmm. Lutheran, there are sharp differences about how much of the human will is involved in a person coming to faith. You know, I, I, my personal view, I, I am an ecumenical individual. I try to emphasize the areas where we have common ground. Mm -hmm. I try to demonstrate what I call the golden rule of apologetics, treat other people's beliefs the way you want yours treated. <laughs> yes. But the reality is there are some sharp differences here. Um, you know, how, and, and again, I think it relates back to some of the things that we said initially about Augustine. What is, what is the effect of original sin? Are we dead in our trespasses and sin? Are we incapable of responding to the grace of God apart from efficacious grace? Or are we kind of wounded by this? Right. And therefore, by God's grace, able to cooperate. So these are, these are kind of secondary issues, but they're still very important issues. And that's where I think maybe we can benefit from understanding what has gone on before and, and where we can agree with Catholics, where we can agree with other Protestants, but where we also have to kind of stand our ground and say, well, uh, we have deep convictions about these things. But, but again, think of all the benefits uh, from, from having advice from Augustine, mm -hmm. uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, Calvin, Luther, and all of those individuals. Um, I, I mean, that's why I wrote my book. I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be a book that would introduce these individuals to people who maybe have only heard the names, but they don't know, you know, the, the details behind it. Right. So Ken, here's kind of a hot button issue. Okay. Um, and as you know, I'm a cumulative apologetics guy, just like you are, you know, you and I have talked about this before and a lot of people like to cite Calvin as their homeboy, right? Especially the presuppositionalists and, and also that you have Sproul and Gerstner in the classical camp, you know, they'll try to say, well, no, he was one of our guys. So where did these individuals stand, especially, you know, Luther and Calvin and their methodology? Yeah, you know, what's, what's interesting is I, I think that clearly Luther and Calvin are more theologian than they are apologists, but they are not, they're not completely apart from apologetics. I mean, Luther, for example, his idea of the theology of the cross, I think in many respects is a type of theodicy in that we should think of the evil of the world within the prism of the crucified Christ. And I think even with Calvin, while Calvin weighs more heavily in theology than in philosophy or apologetics, Calvin has his idea of the census divinitatis, that everybody knows there's a God. I, I don't think there's any doubt that Luther and Calvin would have a, a deep appreciation for the uniqueness of Scripture, for the role of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, I, I think Luther and Calvin would appreciate some of the presuppositional distinctives. But you know, Matt, the more I've looked into this, the more I, I have researched it. I mean, there, there are both Lutheran and Reformed people that are on both sides of this issue. I mean, 
not every reformed thinker agrees with Van Til. Right. Uh, you know, some some think that Van Til uh, maybe focused too hard on certain areas. Uh, for example, Richard Mahler, who may be he may be America's greatest Calvin scholar. Uh, Mueller critiqued uh, some of the presuppositional writings and said that they misunderstood Thomas Aquinas. And maybe Calvin and Aquinas would have more common ground than Van Til ever suggested. And, you know, I, I, I think, and Matt, you know me and you, you know how I respond to these issues. I think that the presuppositionalists, the evidentialists, the classicalists, the cumulative case people, new reformed epistemology, I think we have a lot more in common than the areas that we disagree. Absolutely. I, th I think we should be more charitable and more patient with each other. Amen. And I, I think sometimes we, we make people into enemies who could be our friends. Look, I don't share the same theological beliefs as William Lane Craig does on a host of issues, as you know. But you know what? I'm glad he's there. And I learn a ton from him. And when he comes out and speak, I go and see him. It's funny. John Fesco recently came out with a book. And he's a staunch reform guy. And he argues, you know, that a lot of these guys held to classical proofs. Yep. I've read the book. I, it's awfully persuasive. And I agree with you. I, uh, I know Bill Craig. Uh, I don't agree with him at certain areas. But I respect him. And I've learned a lot from him. Yes. Yes, indeed. Well, Ken, thanks for joining us on the show. We've learned a lot, and we thank you for taking us back to the Reformation to see who these individuals were. Ken, why don't you tell us where people can reach you and tell us a little bit about your ministry? Yeah. Well, thank you very much, uh, Matt and Oning. I, I've really enjoyed this. has been a really fun uh, time to to talk about ideas that I know all three of us care a great deal about. So I really appreciate your kindness in letting me come on. Um, Thank you. I have uh, worked at Reasons to Believe for many years. I think this summer it'll be 23 years I've been working there. I'm kind of the oddball on the scholar team. I'm the non-scientist. So uh, <laughs> uh, I kind of think about issues sometimes a little differently than my colleagues do. But at reasons.org, you can... Uh, you can read my weekly blog called Reflections. My books are there, and you can learn a lot uh, about our organization that looks at science faith issues. Again, it's reasons.org. Ken, you have two of my favorite apologetics books are by you. And they're the, the first one, I think I've told this before, is the one on the historical evidences for the Christian faith. What's the title of that one? I think maybe you're referencing without a doubt. Yes. Yeah. That one. And then you have another one on worldviews where you talk about your personal journey as well. Yeah. A world of difference. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. So whenever I recommend someone who's getting into, into apologetics for the first time, I tell them to get those two books because they go together. Oh, wow. Well, that's, uh, I say, I take that as such a compliment, Matt. I know you're a, you're a very sharp guy. You're a very careful in the way you think and that that's a real thank encouragement you. to me so thank you very much you got it brother and odig where can people reach us they can reach us by email info at bttr 
M-I-N.org or backtothereformation at gmail.com or they can go to our website, B-T-T-R-M-I-N.org. They can find us on Facebook. Uh, our podcast is on Apple, Google, Stitcher, and um, that's it. Awesome. Well, you've been listening to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast, and we hope you join us next time. See ya. <laughs>